Welcome to the Way of the Bible podcast, inspiring and empowering Christians of all measures of faith to simply believe God and follow Jesus. Join in with our host, Bible teacher and guide, Dr. Philip Zimmerman, as he explores the paths through Scripture that lead to life in the will of God, being joyful always, praying continually, and being thankful in all circumstances, simply by believing God and following Jesus. And now, Dr. Z. Welcome again. This is Dr. Philip Zimmerman, Dr. Z. And you've joined me for episode number 085 of Way of the Bible Podcast. So glad to have you with me today. This is our fifth of eight episodes in our 11th mini-series entitled Mystery of Christ, Galatians to Second Thessalonians. On this episode, in view of his return, we're going to overview the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians is likely Paul's first epistle that he wrote. It is believed to have been written around 51 AD while Paul was in Athens or in Corinth on his second missionary journey. Thessalonica was a Roman colony of great importance to the empire, being the chief city of Macedonia. Paul was in the city less than a month, teaching in a synagogue there on three successive Sabbath days. He tells us in Acts 17, 2-4, He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. It then goes on to say that some jealous Jews gathered with some wicked men of the rabble and formed an angry mob. Paul and Silas, at the urging of the brothers, were sent away by night to Berea. There was some trouble brewing in Thessalonica as a result of Paul's preaching. His departure occurred as a result of turmoil and persecution of the church, which was just starting. Later in his missionary travels, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on the condition of the church. Paul was so encouraged by Timothy's report upon his return that Thessalonica became a model church he would suggest others to follow. 1 Thessalonians is five short chapters in which Paul ties his commendations and instructions to the anticipated return of Christ. The first three chapters address Paul's reflections and his commendations to the Thessalonians. His instructions for the church are included in the last two chapters. At the end of every chapter, Paul mentions the return of Jesus Christ, a topic familiar to the church and likely emphasized by Paul during his ministry there. With all that as a little bit of background, let's get into the text. If you're a frequent listener to this podcast, you'll recognize Paul's opening salutation. Similar wording is found in all of his 13 New Testament books. It comes out of 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. In this opening, Paul is not only greeting his readers, but reminding them also of something they all share. Since both Greeks, that would be the Gentiles, and Jews were in the church, Paul greeted them according to custom. Grace, which is charis in the Greek, was the customary Greek greeting, and peace, which is shalom in the Hebrew, was the customary Hebrew greeting. And in this greeting, Paul is making the point that the grace of God opens the way to experience the peace of God. And Paul provides that introduction in all 13 of his New Testament texts. 
Paul then gets right to the point of his letter with praise and commendations for their standing firm in the faith in the face of ridicule and persecution. I'll stop and comment briefly while reading the passages of the text. First one comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The impact of Timothy's report back to Paul is obvious in this thanksgiving and prayer that Paul is offering. What Paul mentions as the basis of their thanksgiving and prayers is the fruit-bearing of the Thessalonians' faith, love, and hope. Their faith produces work, their love produces labor, and their hope produces patience. Faith, love, and hope was not something that they worked up in themselves in order to gain favor with God, but rather something they did because of what God had already given them. This is noted by Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4-5. to For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The power Paul mentions in the Holy Spirit conviction are illuminated in the following two passages. The first one comes out of Romans 1.16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So in that gospel message, the power of God for salvation is there. And what Paul is saying is that is exactly what was there when he was preaching to the Thessalonians, this power of God for salvation. And the second point, in the spirit and with full conviction, this comes out of John chapter 16, verses 8 to 11. This is Jesus speaking. When he, that'd be the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica, and the whosoever heard, received, and believed. Paul notes that their believing amongst many who heard and did not receive and believe was confirmation to them that they were chosen by God. The next passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-8. to You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Paul is exhorting the Thessalonians that their standing firm was a demonstration to believers far and wide that even in the midst of extreme persecution from the Jews and the wicked rabble, they experienced the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's unbelievable. I mean, Paul is just so pumped up about the Thessalonians and how they reacted to this persecution that, of course, he experienced everywhere he went. The significance of the conversion was not a result of Paul preaching against the idols in Thessalonica, but rather his preaching Jesus Christ in the synagogue, with the result being Paul hearing from others about what he had started. This comes out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9-10. to 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, 
and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And there you go. At the end of that chapter, it's the first time Paul mentions and to wait for his Son from heaven. He does. He mentions this in all five chapters. Now, the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation is to convict one of sin and the need for a Savior. Why a Savior? Because Jesus is returning to the earth to judge both the living and the dead. And you can read of Jesus saying this himself in John chapter 5, verses 27 to 29. And Paul explained this in Acts chapter 17, verse 30 to 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul is reminding the Thessalonians they are waiting for Jesus to return from heaven and his deliverance from the wrath to come. Paul mentions this deliverance from the wrath of God also in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Again, this wrath has to come when Jesus comes this next time, the second coming of Christ, it's going to be to judge the world. In the second chapter, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of his ministry among them that although before they got to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas had been badly beaten and thrown in jail in Philippi for proclaiming the gospel, and see that in Acts chapter 16, they continued to proclaim the gospel in Thessalonica with boldness in the midst of much conflict, and that their appeal was not from error or an attempt to deceive, but rather the demonstration of their approval and entrustment by God to proclaim the gospel. Next passage we'll look at is verses 4 to 7. So we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now, Paul is mentioning this. He's only been with them for three weeks, right? And then he's writing this letter later. They had a a big impact on him as he had on them. Paul then notes the ministry team's labor, toil, working day and night, proclaiming the gospel, and not to be a burden to them that in holy, righteous, and blameless conduct they acted like a father with his children. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. And we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to work in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now the kingdom being now, but not yet. The coming millennial kingdom of heaven on earth will be established after Jesus returns to redeem the remnant of Israel. The glory will be in the eternal state with God at the end of all things. We believers will share in both, both the kingdom and the glory. Paul continues to thank God for the Thessalonians, not merely accepting the gospel as the words of men, which would be an intellectual assent, but as the word of God at work in all believers, and that the Thessalonians were imitating the churches of God in Judea who were similarly suffering persecution from the Jews. 
Paul notes of these Jews in Judah in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. And I think you can hear in Paul's text that he had no lost love for those Jews back in Judea. Paul ends this chapter by telling of his reason for longing to return and see the Thessalonians, a return that Satan has hindered. It comes out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Again, I just want to emphasize that Paul was really pumped up about the Thessalonians' faith, and he wants to be standing beside them at the Lord Jesus' return, right? In chapter 3, Paul tells of his reason for sending Timothy to visit with them, to establish and exhort them in their faith amid their afflictions. Remember that when Paul had left Thessalonica, there was an angry mob of jealous Jews and a wicked rabble just beginning to exert itself against the church. Paul couldn't bear waiting to find out the end of the matter, so he sent Timothy there to, to find out what was going on. Had they been tempted by the tempter? Had their ministry labor been in vain? And much to Paul's relief, Timothy not only returned with a good report of their faith and love, but that the believers in the church at Thessalonica always remember Paul kindly and hope to see him soon as well. Paul noted that this good report of their faith comforted them amidst their own distress and affliction. And that with joy they pray earnestly for the church until they can again meet and supply what is lacking in their faith. Paul ends this chapter reminding the Thessalonians of the end they are all pursuing together. It comes out of 1 Thessalonians 3, 11-13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Third time Paul has mentioned this, Jesus is coming. And notice he's, he's, he's mentioning it as like, like Jesus is coming back soon. Paul was expecting Jesus' return in his generation. In chapter 4, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of instructions for walking out a life pleasing to God, which in fact they are doing. The will of God for them is their sanctification, which includes abstaining from sexual immorality, controlling one's own body in holiness and honor, and not to transgress and wrong a brother in this matter. Paul notes the contrast with the Gentiles who do not know God and act in accord with their passions. Paul is reminding them not to resist or rebuff sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul acknowledges their brotherly love taught to them by God, which has been displayed in all Macedonia. And then he gives a little heard instruction appropriate for all believers. This comes out of 1 Thessalonians 4, 11-12. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, this was an example that Paul demonstrated amongst all the churches, working hard to provide for his own support. This was also to counter those who were refusing to work 
thinking it was of no relevance in the view of Jesus' return. Because remember, they were expecting Jesus to return at any moment, as, as we are. We're, it's the imminent return of Christ. He could come back at any time. And some people were stopping working, thinking that Jesus is coming back. Why should I keep on working? Jesus is coming back and taking me out of here. And Paul just reminds them, you need to work. <laughs> you, know, you, you, need to earn, you need to support yourself. To highlight this point of continuing to work amid the waiting, Paul addresses the return of Jesus. In the following passage, Paul provides the most descriptive details in the New Testament of the coming resurrection of believers who have fallen asleep, or you call say that they died, and the harpazo, or the snatching away of believers, at the aerial return of Jesus Christ before the Great Tribulation. But before we get to that text, we need to do a sidebar. The passage we're about to look at in the history of the church has been a source of much division between denominations and reputable scholars who have very different views concerning the return of Jesus and the coming day of the Lord. Of course, both are prophesied in the Old and New Testaments, but exactly how these will play out is the source of much contention. Let me briefly explain the background and then present where I fall in the ongoing debate. In philosophy, there's a term called epistemology, which is the study of the scope and limits of knowledge, which would be basically, how do you know what you know? And what we're going to look at today is the cycle of epistemology seen in theology. So I'm going to bring up some terms here, big words, theological terms, but they do actually have actual relevant meaning in what we're going about to discuss. Hermeneutics is a theory of biblical interpretation, and it has two opposite approaches. In one approach are those who allegorize what's in the scriptures, and that results in a liberal interpretation or a loose interpretation of the text. The other approach includes those who take the scriptures literally as written. And of course, this results in precise or tight interpretation. And all of that had to do with the term hermeneutics. Eschatology, which is the study of the end times, sharpens one's ecclesiology. So through two more big terms at you. Eschatology, study of the end times or the end of time, and ecclesiology, and that's ecclesiology deals with the church in its mystical sense. One's eschatology, or how you consider what's going to be happening at the end, will actually sharpen your ecclesiology, which is what is the church in the mystical sense. And ecclesiology impacts one's hermeneutics, which is the first one we started with, closing a loop which drives the diligent toward an increasingly literal view of the text. In the area of eschatology, which of course is the study of the end times, what's going to happen at the end of time or the end of times, there are several views on the return of Jesus in connection with a millennial or a thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. This millennial reign would be the fulfillment of God's prophetic promises to King David because he had made a covenant with David that he would have a son sitting on the throne of a kingdom that would last forever, and Israel, that they would one day rule the world from Jerusalem in a kingdom that would have no end. So the thousand-year reign of Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant of, to King David and a fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Israel. And I'll mention three of these views in eschatology. The first is the amillennial view which is that there is no millennial kingdom rule before the eternal state. So there's not going to be this thousand-year reign of Christ and King David. Jesus is just going to come back, and boom, the eternal state starts. This view is the most popular in Christendom, being the, the view of Catholicism and most Protestant denominations. And they typically have an allegorical hermeneutic or a liberal loose interpretation of the scriptures in regards to this eschatology, what's going to be happening at the end. Then you have the what's called the post-millennial view, which means that we are in the millennial kingdom now, that when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the millennial kingdom started. 
Well, that particular view fizzled out about midway into the second thousand years after Christ's ascension. And of course, they were using a mixed hermeneutic of allegorical to precise interpretation, both. But it never, never, they got to about 1200 AD or 1300 AD. It's obvious that Satan is still pretty active in the world and that the kingdom has not yet started. The millennial kingdom has not started. And the third view we'll look at is the premillennial view, which believes that Jesus will return prior to establishing a millennial kingdom. And there's going to be a literal thousand year reign of Christ in the premillennial view as he returns prior to establishing that millennial kingdom. And this view is a minor view within Christendom. It's, it's held by what many, many people call fundamentalists, and it has precise hermeneutics or a tight, literal interpretation of the Scripture. Now, I've been a student of eschatology for quite some time, and again, that's the study of the end times, and I've done considerable study on ecclesiology in this, the mystical sense of the church, and I've honed, based upon extensive study of church history and biblical research, very precise hermeneutics. Uh, you know, I take the text literally as written. You know, I think the text means what it says. God meant what he what he had written down, and he means what he says. He's going to fulfill it all. My position regarding the passage I'm about to read comes from my premillennial view of the end of time. And there are many competent scholars who hold a different view. I guess that's what I'm trying to say here. But I believe in the sincerity of all my heart and all of my studies that I've done that Jesus is going to return to call his bride into heaven before the great tribulation begins. And that near the end of the tribulation, Jesus will bodily return when a remnant of Israel calls out for him to rescue them in their distress. Jesus will, in fact, bodily return, destroy the Antichrist and his army, judge the nations of the world, and establish a literal 1,000-year reign of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Jesus will rule with the world with his saints, and that's what Paul's talking about. He's going to come back with his saints. The believers in Christ are coming back with him in our resurrected bodies. King David will be prince over Israel, and Israel will be the first of all nations. After this thousand-year reign has ended, Satan will be released for a short period of time. The nations of the world will be gathered against Jesus, and he'll destroy them by the word of his mouth. And then comes the great white throne judgment of all the living and the dead with death, Hades, and Satan being cast in the lake of fire, along with all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Then comes a new heaven and a new earth and the initiation of the eternal state where God dwells on earth with humanity into eternity. Boy, and we're going to get into a lot more of this as the further we go through the Scriptures. And once we hit the book of Revelation, we're going to go into it in great detail. Now, with all that said, let's get to 1 Thessalonians four thirteen to 18, which started that whole sidebar. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, it is evident in this passage that Paul has taught the Thessalonians about the return of Jesus and about the judgment of the world before Jesus establishes his millennial kingdom. 
There may have been those in Thessalonica who were concerned about believers who had already died and about those who may die before Jesus returns. Will they be left in the grave and have no hope being with Jesus? Paul addresses this by saying, We are not like those who have no hope. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord. It comes out of verse 415. This is not something Paul made up. This whole idea that this is what he's presented in this passage is not something that Paul made up, but is the word from the Lord himself. Notice Paul includes himself in what he says next. We who are alive. Paul was expecting this to happen in his lifetime. He was hoping it was going to happen in his lifetime. What a just imagine it. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Man, what a, what a description that Paul is providing us. Jesus is going to descend from heaven, give a cry of a command by an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with the resurrected dead in Christ in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air and will always be with Jesus thereafter. Paul is so certain of this, he tells him in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 19, to encourage one another with these words. I mean... This is something Paul believed with all his heart, mind, and soul this was going to happen. Now, with that in mind, shouldn't we, as Paul has reminded over and over again, be looking forward to the return of Jesus in our own lives here in 2023? We should be looking forward to his return to get beamed up out of here. Praise the Lord. And now that Paul has opened up this can of worms, he goes on to remind the Thessalonians of the coming day of the Lord. And that occurs in chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brother, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Jesus had spoken of his return being like in the days of Noah, like a thief in the night, and of the harpazo, the snatching away of believers, in a private conversation that he had with his disciples, which is found in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 44. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, or pod out here, and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one left. <laughs> Verse 42, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
me just make this point right here with that Jesus is using this analogy of a thief coming at night. What is a thief coming in at night to, to do in your house? He's coming to do what? To steal something. What's he going to steal? The things of least value or the things of most value? Oh, he's coming to steal the things of most precious value. What is the most precious, valuable thing to God? Us believers. He's taking us out of here before he's poured out his wrath. Jesus is coming like a thief in a knife, and he's going to go, he's going to snatch away the believers. Oh, man. Because he's taking us out so the wrath of God can begin. Just as the two angels of the Lord that were in Sodom visiting with Lot, they had to get Lot, his wife, and the two daughters out of there before they could do anything against Sodom. Same thing here. God's going to take us out. Jesus is coming back to get us out of here before a literal hell on earth commences. Paul then continues in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 to 8. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And of course, Jesus speaks extensively of being in the light, and he ends his discussion with this in John chapter 12, verse 46. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And again, Paul's just letting us know that we are not going to be surprised like the thief coming and getting us at the night. We know that Jesus is coming to get us. It's not going to be a surprise to us. We're just going to get beamed up out of here. You know, praise the Lord. And why is he just going to beam us out of here? Paul addresses that in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 to 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And again, Paul says in verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. I mean, this whole hope of the of the harpazo, or some people call it the, the rapture, the harpazo, the snatching away of believers. Paul is saying we should be encouraging one another. The Lord is coming back. He's going to judge the world. And don't worry when he comes back because you're going to be taken out of here, but you're not going before those dead in Christ are raised first. And then we're going up and join them in the air. Oh, he's, he's Paul saying, encourage one another with those words. And what an encouragement to be shared among believers. We will not suffer the coming wrath of God on the earth. But through faith in Jesus, we will be rescued from the wrath, whether asleep or still living when he returns. We'll both be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air and return with him bodily as he comes to rescue Israel and destroy his enemies, as we'll hear on future episodes. And we get to rule and reign with him on earth for a thousand years. Man, it's just unbelievable what we have in our future. The remainder of chapter 5 are Paul's final instructions in a benediction. I'll read it and make a few comments along the way. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. This is Paul's charge to care for the shepherds watching over the flock of the church. Unfortunately, over the history of the church, it has not listened too well, and a well-deserved saying has been coined for people entering into ministry and serving as pastors and elders, and that saying is, beware of the sheep because they bite. 
Now, while I was in seminary getting my Master of Divinity degree, we were told that an average stay of a senior pastor in a church was only about 18 months. That's the senior pastor. Their, their time in the pulpit was only about 18 months. And of course, they gave a lot of reasons. Another statistic was that 80% of all MDiv graduates, of course, I was in, getting a Master of Divinity degree, looking forward to being in full-time ministry. They said 80% of all MDiv graduates are not involved in any form of church ministry within three years after graduation. And I, I believe me, I was sitting there in the classroom paying for this education going, what am I doing here? If 80% drop out in three years, well, and again, they gave lots of reasons why these statistics were so, including a lack of openings in ministry. And I just want to encourage all of us to take care of and encourage our pastor and their ministry teams for their service to us, and that we may provide them joy in their lives, and that we may be found to be soft, cuddly sheep and not the biting kind. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good one to another and to everyone. And I think what Paul is speaking of here, you know, there's a, there is a mixture in the church. You have a mixture of brand new believers coming into your church and getting saved at, the, at, a, at a service or, or, or coming to the Lord somewhere else and coming into your church body and they've got issues and you have others in the church who are closing in on that being fully mature in christ and in this mixture paul is telling us to always seek to do good one to another and to everyone you know admonishing the idle encouraging the faint-hearted helping the weak being patient with them all and see to it that no one repays evil for evil but always do good to one another and to everyone First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This passage is my podcast episode ending tagline. I love it because here Paul is telling us how we can know if we are in the will of God. Am I joyful always? Am I praying continually? Having a conversation, just a running conversation with God all the time. Am I giving thanks in all circumstances? If I answer no to any of these questions, I've got work to do. I've got to put off my body of flesh. I've got to put on life in the spirit. I've got to surrender my will for God's will. I need to repent, listen, and love with the express purpose of allowing the spirit to complete my sanctification, that I may be found fully mature in Christ. God's desire for me and for you is that the fruit of our sanctification would be being joyful always, praying continually, and thankful in all circumstances. That's what he wants for each of us. Lord, may it be so. 1 Thessalonians five nineteen to 22 Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Uh, Paul is just letting us know if we ever feel out of touch with the Spirit and with God, these are some great things to consider looking into. Did we quench the Spirit? Have we despised prophecies? Have we not tested everything? Have we not been holding fast to what is good? Have we not abstained from every form of evil? <laughs> Paul just lays it all right out here in the Thess- for the Thessalonians. Paul gives his benediction in 1 Thessalonians five twenty three to 24 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 
Now, remember that Paul wants us to become mature in Christ, and that maturity is the result of complete sanctification by God through his Spirit. May we let the Holy Spirit have his will in us. Paul closes his letter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 25 to 28. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I just want to encourage you with those words, that benediction from Paul, and the fact that he wanted this letter to be read to all the brothers. That includes us in 2023. We're part of the brotherhood in Christ and sisterhood in Christ. And with that, we end our overview of the book of 1 Thessalonians. <laughs> what we learned on this episode was to follow the example of the Thessalonians who re- remain steadfast and firm in their faith amid persecutions. And we may be experiencing that as the church in not so long near-term future. And central to that steadfastness was looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ, possibly in our own lifetime. And we too should have such a view and not be caught in the dark when Jesus returns like a thief in the night. May we always be found in the light and doing our master's business. On our next episode, we're going to overview the book of 2 Thessalonians. In this book, Paul is addressing concerns in the church that Jesus had already returned and that they missed the harpazo or the snatching away. And we're soon to experience the wrath of God. False teachers entering the church and spreading harmful rhetoric is not something new. It was happening right there with the Thessalonians. May we protect ourselves against such teachers by being our own students of the word, able to discern from the scriptures the truth from the lies and the deceptions. Thank you for listening. Subscribe, follow, rate, review the show. Show notes and other resources are found on my website, wayofthebible.com. Join me on the path, write me a note. I would love to hear from you. My email address is drz, that's D-R-Z, at wayofthebible.com. And let me end this episode as I end all my episodes, and of course, which comes out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. Simply believe God and follow Jesus. Live as a child of light, overflowing with living water and the will of God, being joyful always, praying continually, and thankful in all circumstances. Be blessed, my brothers and sisters. We hope this episode of Way of the Bible has you feeling inspired and empowered to simply believe God and follow Jesus. Remember to search the scriptures to confirm what you've heard today. And join us next episode as we continue to discover together the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ and be transformed daily by the renewing of your mind. Knowing God's will for you is a life filled with joy, prayer, and thanksgiving. Be blessed.